0: Comics in Motion is thrilled to be partnering with Humble to become Humble Partners. If you follow the link in the show notes, you'll be taken to Humble Bundle, where you can get some access to some amazing stuff. Digital comics, digital books, video games, coding manuals. The amount of stuff that you can get there is obscene. Plus, you get it at a ridiculous discount. So here's what you need to do. Click that link. Go to Humble Bundle. Not only are you going to get great stuff at a great deal, but you're also going to support a charity and you're going to help Comics in Motion keep the lights on. So, click the link, go to Humble Bundle, get yourself some amazing stuff. Thanks.
1: First, there
2: was the DC Comics News Podcast. Then came the
3: Spinner Rack.
2: And now, the third show brought to you by the guys that brought you all that other stuff I just mentioned. I... I am the night. A story about the stories.
1: A show celebrating Batman, the animated series. Week by week, episode by episode. Just when you thought it was
3: safe to put on a pair of headphones. I am the night.
0: graphic novels from the company of the Big Two. The hope here is that we can do a deep dive on an indie comic you may have missed or give you a chance to talk about one of your favorites with us on social media afterwards. I'm your host, Tony Farina of DC Comics News and Fantastic Universes. I've been reading comics since I was 12, and while I love a good superhero battle, I gravitate towards indie comics, and standalone graphic novels, because they give artists a chance to connect with readers in different ways and tell stories they may not have been able to tell with traditional comics or traditional novels. I hope that you enjoyed the show. All right, well, I have two guests today. So my first guest you've heard before on the show and Ivan on his show, the host of Star Wars Comics and Canon and Genuine Chit Chat, Mike Burton, Mike. Hello there. Hello. So Mike and I were going to cover, Mike was on the show and I'll link to this. We covered second coming from Ahoy Comics uh, with Mark Russell. And so we were going to do Billionaire Island and then I reached
1: out to Mark Russell and he's here too. Mark Russell,
0: thank you for coming. I need to come. My my pleasure.
1: And, f- and for anyone who's wondering, I've I've not been kidnapped or anything. Is, I'm I'm filming from my garage today, right? <laughs> due
3: to well, circumstances that-
1: beyond my control. So that's that's why <laughs> looks like looks like a ransom video.
3: I'm gonna
0: totally well. It's we don't put the video in, but I'm going and I mean I'm gonna have to put a <laughs> screenshot on so people <laughs> oh, oh, see Yeah, <laughs> people can see what it looks like. It really does kind of we'll look hoist like upon
1: it. my own petard. That's man. right.
0: <laughs> That's genius. So, as you know, Mark, I've interviewed you a few times uh, for, for Flintstones and Snagglepuss, and so I'm, I'm honored that you've said yes to being on the show, um, you know, and I'll link to those articles that we did for DC Comics News. Um, so Billionaire Island is, I'm a big fan, and we're going to go in depth with that, but since you're, this is your first time on the show, anytime I have somebody on the show, I always have them start with how they, you know, their comic book origin story, you know, and for Mike and I, we're just fans. So we have that, but you obviously must be a fan, but you're also a creator. And so what is, what? when, when did you get into comics as a, just as a person? And then how did you make that transition from writing, you know, God is disappointed in you to this? And I know you had Shannon on that and, and with a comic book background there. I love too much Coffee Man. One day I will cover that on the show because that Great. was genius. So, um,
1: Take it away, sir. Yeah, so you know, as a kid, I wasn't a huge comic book fan. I, I mostly, you know, would get comic books from the spinner racks in stores when I was a kid. So I get like Batman comics or Mighty Mouse comics or whatever. Oh, Mighty
0: Mouse, I forgot about Mighty yeah. Mouse. Nice. They're
1: surprisingly good. Um, but then as an adult like when I was in college I had a friend who was really into comics and he started introducing me to things like V for Vendetta and Sandman I was like oh this is a much more nuanced medium this is like a medium for like really sort of experimental and advanced storytelling so I I think I got more into comics at that point and but but I never really aspired to work in comics just sort of happened i just imagined myself as like an aspiring writer and i still kind of think of myself as an aspiring writer um but i had written a a, a pair of books that had cartoons in them drawn by shannon wheeler of too much coffee man and the the new yorker fame that were the books were picked up and published by um by top shelf which is a comic book company so I, i even though the books themselves weren't comics i sort of got a side, you know, foot sideways in through the door to the comic book industry through them, and then based on that, and also some like um, some Count Chocula fan fiction I was posting on my Facebook page, I uh, got a call from Marie Javens at DC asking me if I'd be interested in writing a uh, a comic book that was sort of a um, political satire about a teenager who becomes president. And it sounded intriguing to me, so I, I said yes before really knowing what I was getting myself into, uh, which is really the best way to go about life, I think, you know, because once you know what you're getting yourself into, you'll probably say no. So <laughs> the, um, the sort of half-informed yes is like how I, pretty much everything good in my life has happened. Uh, so I, I said yes, and then they, they put me to work on uh, Prez, the update of the uh, 1973 uh, Joe Simon comic uh and and yeah that was really my, my beginning in comics uh, is that that six issues of prez that i got via this weird tangential you know legacy trip of going from like just writing to writing a book that was ostensibly in the comic book world to being in the comic book world nice and prez
0: that was a great that ended prematurely you got to do that one shot right in the election day
1: yeah special. and that was like sort of what the plot of issue number seven was going to be before it was canceled just sort of condensed down so it was really sort of like one storyline within like issue number seven because they only gave me like i think it was like i can't remember it was eight or ten pages for this it was
0: eight yeah that was yes. too bad i loved i loved that book and so it was really because you know and it was a while too between the time it ended and the, that election special came
1: out so yeah yeah, yeah the, the cancellation of Prez, uh, which I mean, I understand from a sales standpoint, because I don't think anybody was reading it. Uh, but uh, yeah, there you go. All right. One. I'm the guy. They were like, that one guy, I was still in Michigan at the time. That is, our
0: sales in Michigan are one. That's not good <laughs> enough.
1: But, it, you know, it made sense, I guess, from a sales standpoint, because I mean, even though it was selling about like about like 10,000 copies an issue, it was really kind of like on DC's sort of cancellation threshold. So I I don't begrudge them canceling it. But, you know, the the idea at the time when they approved it was that we were going to go 12 issues and it was going to go uh, from like 2015 right up to the 2016 election. And that's what I was really looking forward to. Like a lot of the storylines I had about like, you know, what was wrong with American politics were actually, you know, backloaded to like the, the back six issues. Uh, with the idea that I'm gonna be talking about this in real time as the election is coming up. And so it really is kind of disappointing that it got canceled after six uh, issues. But it was, it, was an, it was a good learning experience because I, I didn't realize that that could really happen before. And now I, I, I know for a fact that it can. And I, I sort of write in six issue arcs feeling like I know I can get away with six issues uh, whether or not you can get away with more than that is, is yet to be seen.
0: Well, did some of the stuff then from Prez make it into the mayoral election in Flintstones? The stuff you didn't get to use?
1: No, actually, you know, some of the stuff I was going to use in Prez, actually, a lot of the, the sort of like details and sort of sub storylines ended up showing up in Billionaire Island.
0: Oh, cool. Look at that <laughs> yeah. segue. Well done.
1: So, so, it, you know, in, in the end, and I think this is kind of my philosophy towards writing too, is just to, to write with abandon because. Even though something might not be used in the project you're intending for or the project you're intending might not ever come to fruition. Nothing's ever really wasted, you will find if something is good and stands the test of time, you'll find a a place for it somewhere else later.
0: Nice. Well, that's awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear how that connection goes because because I love the mayoral election in Flintstones. Um, That was, you know, a there was so much political satire in the Flintstones writ large you and i talked about this and you know in emails before about how and i'll link to it how you know for me this, the brains of that entire run was pebbles and um like her the only voice of reason in this world was you know a 14 year old so i just i thought that was i was really smart it, 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 that's why i wondered because with prez you know she was also a kid so that had connected but i'll be i'll be keen to see how where, you know what survived in billionaire island so yeah. Um, well, let, let me give everybody just a brief rundown if they haven't heard of Billionaire Island. First of all, shame on you. <laughs> um, second of all, Billionaire Island is Ahoy. It actually, uh, which you were kind of with Ahoy right from the jump, right? When they first, they, they picked up, they saved um, Second Coming from, from DC. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, they had a, a, um, a wave of comics before that, uh, although I was with them pretty early on because uh, I was in like the first issue of the Edgar Allan Poe Snifter of Terror uh, that's where I sort of debuted my serial monster story, uh, but yeah, they they were already pretty well established before Second Coming came along. But yeah, they 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 swooped in and got it after um, we parted ways with Vertigo, uh, and they they did a really great job with it. They let us put extra pages in like some of the issues to like really allow the story to be told the way it was um, the way I wanted to be, rather than forcing the story to sort of conform to the medium. They changed the medium to conform to the story which was great and uh Richard had the idea of bringing Leonard Kirk in to do like inks and stuff to so that it would he would have his own like and, and to do his own art so they it, it, it looks very different from the scenes that are in the, the past 2000 years ago in Christ's childhood the scenes that are in present day and the scenes that are set in heaven which look, you know, more surreal and more sort of hyper real. That, that was largely Richard's idea to do that. And you know, Ahoy was very gracious to allow us to bring on a second artist to, to pull off that visual effect. So, yeah, it's been really, they've, they've, they've done a, as good a job as I can imagine someone doing with Second Coming.
0: Yeah. And Mike and I talked about that exactly those flashback scenes and how um, startling, startlingly different in a good way they were, you know, and that was. And what, what a great team that was. So um, Billionaire Island is essentially takes place in 2044. Shit's bad, everybody. I know you're surprised. What? Um I, <laughs> and um, shit's worse. I'm sorry, thank you, Mike. Shit's worse than it is now. Um, and what happens is, is uh, you take it, you have it sort of, there's a floating island in the Gulf of Mexico off of Florida. And it's where the billionaires live to get away from the masses of people that they fucked over in their (laughs) lives. And all of the worst human beings that ever could live, Harvey Weinstein, Louis C.K., Kevin Spacey, who I love, by the way, you didn't give him a fake name, you just called him Kevin, so bravo on that. Um, They're all there on Billionaire Island and we follow a soldier um, whose family was killed and a, a reporter who want to try to take down the billionaires. That's the general gist of it. I don't want to give too much away. So now this, you started this project and it you kind of did it during the pandemic. So I was curious if maybe you could start with that. Like, did that change? Because you started this what in twenty eighteen? You pitched this to them? Yeah,
1: yeah. I wrote it uh, in twenty eighteen, and yeah, we, the actually uh, I think twenty nineteen uh, is when I finished writing it. But yeah, the idea was that it was going to come out like um, in March two thousand twenty. So it was all finished, you know, in the can by you know late two thousand nineteen, uh, and and then like the irony is that it's a um, a, a comic about a pandemic that was interrupted by a a pandemic. So like there was a gap between issue number one, which came out in March, and then three months when the comic book industry and pretty much everything shut down. Uh, Issue number two didn't come out until June of 2020. So it's been a little wonky trying to reboot a title in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, But the trade paperback, for those who haven't been keeping up, or, or maybe even now just hearing about the comic, the trade paperback comes out in November. So like in a couple of weeks. So there nice. you go. We'll,
0: we'll, we'll try to, we'll have this come out maybe right in that, in that.
1: Week oh, that'd be, that'd be fantastic.
0: Yeah, we can do that. We can make that happen. I, yeah, I can do whatever I want. It's my show. Yeah, I mean, it's show. That up. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I, I'm curious uh, uh, and Mike, I don't know if you are too, because it came out during the pandemic. I wondered, but you just kind of answered that. You made no changes
1: no it was already written and in, in the you know you know the artwork was was half done uh so yeah there, it was that that ship had sailed you know by the time issue number one and it come out and then the pandemic happened that's crazy so i was gonna say may i ask you uh, mark uh,
2: when it comes to uh obviously you, with the writings recently with second coming and uh with billionaire and obviously flintstones I can go on when you write how I'm just intrigued how it's it's different to writing, obviously a standard book, you know, just the words compared to how you write it when you collaborate with someone to create the comic. I'm just intrigued, like, how much of the process do you guys sort of uh, discuss before the final product, if you don't mind me asking, because I know that you've uh, collaborated with, uh, is it uh, Steve Pugh, is Mm -hmm. that?
1: Yeah, Steve does uh, Billionaire Island and he did the Flintstones. And yeah, I think a lot of the collaboration is just sort of like talking uh, beforehand and coming out with, you know, you finding people who have a sensibility similar to yours. The more, like Steve's someone who, who gets me and I think we, we have a similar sense of humor. So uh, the, I don't have to tell him a whole lot. It's like, in fact, I'm better served by leaving as much to his imagination as possible because then people give me credit for his you know. <laughs> All the back, we, we're definitely
0: going to talk about the puns um, yeah. because that's, you can't, you and Steve doing stuff with, with visual puns. Um, yeah, that's awesome. That's so One cool. thing that really
1: kind of drew me to comics as a medium, as opposed to like prose writing, is that in prose writing, you kind of have to like do all that sort of uh, world building and visual creation yourself through words. And it's always been my least favorite part about writing. Um, and so with comics, you, you, you know, you got people for that. You, got, you know you pay someone to to sort of create the, the visual sense and to like add descriptions and you can, and you can focus on the dialogue and the metaphor that you're trying to get across which is what really I, I like to focus on when I'm when I'm writing so having an artist who gets where you're going and gets your sensibility like someone like Steve Pugh, is like so great because then he takes on a, a big part of the the onerous part of writing and, and frees me up to do the things I really want to focus on
0: Nice, that's awesome. I think that's great, and I think, I think too. And then, and with Ahoy, by moving to Ahoy, you and Richard, and now you and Steve. Because when you did, did the Flintstones, you were doing for a DC title. It was you and it was Mm the same team. You and Steve and um, Chuckry and Rob is doing the letters, right? It's the same, right? Yeah. So um, you didn't own those, but you get to own these too, right? And so, is there a different? Is there a different sense to what Mike was asking about that sitting around and talking about it when you're when you're going to know that these are your characters that you get to do with is that part of the planning too? that's like, well, these are our characters so we can, we can do our six issue arc, but then we can also.
1: And and it's weird to think that like, uh, now we own the IP for Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) But uh uh, but yeah, and, and, and because, because you know, Richard and I co-own Second Coming, it's like, yeah, we talked very much, much more extensively, I think, than any other comic I've done about like what this is going to look like and, you know, and what, uh, you know, the, the especially because there's like, you know, political, um, there's, there's, there's political sort of intonations and in everything you're, you're drawing in a comic book about Jesus Christ, like how, how white or non-white should you make jesus and that was like a big conversation we had because historically he wasn't a white guy but the the jesus that everybody has in their mind and we are writing this comic in part to um to reach people who like you, you know live in this sort of suburban america and have one conception of jesus that's very ahistorical and not even very scriptural so how do we reach those people to me it was more important to like match the Christ that they recognize in their heads. Uh, and so they they, they they recognize this as the Jesus they know and love. And he's telling them things that they need to badly hear, um, even though it might not be what they want to hear. To me, that was more important than like trying to go after some historical or scriptural accuracy. So we made him very much along the lines of these sort of traditional, you know, Western European slash American Jesus Christ although we made him a little less white just to, as a nod to the fact that this is not a white man right Right. you should
0: yeah. that always is my uh there's actually a great did you ever see Avenue Q
1: yeah
0: yeah there's a so, seen it as well oh yeah okay so there's the whole thing when they're arguing bickering back and forth and like Jesus was Jewish Gary Coleman says Jesus was Jewish which is like that line and then the pink. the best part about Avenue Q is the the people who did that music also went on to do Frozen so it's like <laughs> there's that's there's a, there's a talent range right there you could you can appeal to everyone i think that's actually what makes avenue q so genius is that it's unflinchingly honest in that way so i appreciated that um in there but that's what just made me think of it when you were talking about that because that is my wife who's not who wasn't raised in any kind of churchy way and I, know I was raised catholic and so my part of the catholics where i was raised um we had white white blonde Jesus, and yeah. my wife was always like, that's just dumb. What are you talking about? There's white that blonde satitude. Jesus. That was a right. thing. <laughs> was. I
2: mean, I, I went to a Catholic school. Well, I'm from England. So it's like I went to a Catholic school, my, my primary school. So from the age of like five to ten. And I never heard of white blonde Jesus. That sounds very... Aryan, <laughs> like, insane, right? even worse than the already sort of Westernization of Jesus' image. That's pretty. Yeah,
0: yeah. and so we went to one of my daughters was playing in a symphony, and that place they were supposed to play something happened, so they moved it to a church to play because the acoustics were good. And there, enough, there, sure enough, painting. There was a big white blonde Jesus mural in this Catholic church. She was like first time she'd ever seen that. she's like forty five years old. Said, yeah. What the fuck is what is that? So I appreciate. That you and Richard had that conversation because I don't, it was, and I don't
1: really have anything against white Jesus. Uh, I and I think I don't have anything against like churches using a black Jesus or you know right. Latino Jesus. I think that because in a lot of ways Christ is sort of this this variable. He's this algebraic symbol that stands between us and our and our compassion. And if you know whatever symbol you need to to bridge that gap between you and your your compassion for other human beings, I I don't care what that symbol is. Just find it find find the variable that works for you that allows you to unlock this sort of like christ-like view of like other human beings inside yourself
2: yeah and because see, as christ is uh if you uh, if you listen to how uh sort of christianity and catholicism views it in a lot of ways it is you know the father son the holy spirit christ is god and god can in theory project himself or project anything because if you know he's all powerful this that who's to say jesus would not look different to different people. If we right. can even go down that road, is like if, if it's your connection, if it's like the human way of God being uh we, with us it could just be your own how you see jesus could actually be one of those things i'm, I'm not a religious individual just to clarify so that. No, no, no. yeah there's
1: there's so many different approaches to christ not only within christianity but within other religions christ mm. shows up in islam and you know and so, and so i think in a lot of ways he's more important as a um as a thought experiment than he is as an actual historical figure Okay. But I
0: think, and I think what you just said, Mike, is also true. And I think Neil Gaiman touches on that in Sandman, right? Because Morpheus, he does look different to whomever sees him. So in, in Sandman, if it's somebody from, you know, a, an African country, he looks like someone who's from that country. If, he, if he's in America, he's, you know, pasty white guy. If, and so it's, so they're, they're, and that's deliberate. And like, they, they, like five or 10 issues into that, you actually finally see him from another perspective. So I think that concept of a deity being what you need it to be um and of course in this in billionaire island the deity is money and there is that moment when the people are in the hamster cage and the money is falling on them and they are still like grabbing it and that was like such a moment of because Shelly's is like what are you guys doing and they're like well we may need it he wouldn't give it to us if we, and it's that it's that it's it, it's the, the value that they've given the money is that's in that moment trapped in the hamster cage. That's still the thing they worship. It, it was such right. a, that's how I saw that anyway. I don't know if
1: I'm overreaching. And it's a metaphor it. for how, how money is used on us. Uh, when I was writing the script, I, I, I put in the notes for Steve that like I wanted to almost look like he's feed, they're feeding fish like the fish foods coming down from the top of the tank mm. and all the fish are swimming up to get the, to get the food. And it does sort of look like, I don't like they're, they're jumping up to get the money. It almost looks like they're levitating in air, like to get the, the fish food, but it's really about how money controls us. And part of it is that, um, that, yeah, obviously it, you're, you're, it's the stick in capitalism. Or I mean, it's the carrot in capitalism where it's like, if you do a good job or if you do what we tell you, you, you fit within, the, the institutional requirements of you, that you will be rewarded with this money. But I think also in a much more um, insidious way, it's a reassurance that everything's gonna be all right, that this system is sustainable and it'll keep, because why would they be giving this money if it wasn't going to be good later on? So it's sort of this subliminal message that, like, that, that, that equates capitalism with stability. And it's the uh, sort of central, this is a central assumption that, um, that allows us to like go over the waterfall without knowing it
0: just talking about that scene just when you came on we literally were talking about that scene at the end the waterfall moment and how that was like the perfect you know obviously the apt metaphor for the entire book you stick in issue six that when shelly's writing her story and there's even a picture and what's the line mike you wrote it down that oh well oh. it got me this far.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just it's, it's the explanation of people holding on to the log, isn't it? It's going down a waterfall, and they're like, "Well, it got me this far, so why would I let
1: it go now?" It's like it, that means. Right, that it's, means. It's, totally laughing about that, it's how people invest in institutions uh, up until the moment they fail, and we never get off because we all we have really to bank on is the past. You know, we, we have made the mistake, as any investment house will tr- will tell you, past performance that's not indicative of future results and yet somehow we always seem to think it is
0: yeah and that's absurd that's absurd because what you show us in this book is such a kick in the balls to that with the fact that everything is decided by a hungry dog and the genius moment at the end the big reveal when things go sideways and it had it was all just because the dog food bag was empty. So of course the dogs can eat whatever food you fucking put in front yeah. of it first.
1: Empires have fallen for less, you know. <laughs> <That's>, that, <laughs> that part was wasn't science fiction.
0: No, no, that's, that is that, that is super true. What was your, I mean, is, and is that what that was? The, is that, that was the commentary there what you were just talking about the dog yeah. the fact that it was completely how- arbitrary.
1: When you have these huge concentrations of wealth and, you know, the economy is based upon, you know, this, not upon the production of anything, but upon like the manipulation of capital that, yeah, when you have these huge bubbles of capital, you know, people will lose their jobs, companies will rise or fall based upon incredible, you know, like Jeff Bezos has a bad breakfast or, you know, and and he decides to dump a bunch of stock or whatever, because he's just irritated, then that, that... That's stock prices going down. There's people like losing their jobs as a result of that. So it's kind of like a slightly hyperbolic way of presenting how, how um, beholden, how hostage we are to like this really arbitrary system of decision making. And, and and you know, in very real sense, like like Jeff Bezos' divorce like had an you know outsized impact on the economy because now his wife like is now has a higher net worth than like you know, four or five American states, you know, she's worth more than the state of Montana just by virtue of divorcing Jeff Bezos. So it's not, business dog. Isn't too much of a hyperbole based uh, over what the reality truly is in American capitalism. It is, it, it was, I la- like what a setup too, because
0: it wasn't right away. We get to see business dog. It's like, we keep seeing this like group of, of, uh, you know, the top billionaires and they're all idiots. And you learn later when the architect, uh, Jake's is like in the flashback scene and he's trying to build billionaire island. And he's. And they're like, why us? And he's like, well, because we need the things that you produce. And they knew nothing about that. They knew yeah. nothing about it. And so there's like this whole nepotistic system. It's and it's,
1: it's what modern capitalism is. It's not about controlling the means of production. It's about controlling the means of the means of production. It's about controlling the, the, the capital. So you have people in charge of industries who don't really know or care how these industries work or about the realities of, of uh, producing the actual physical things that people need to live on the planet. They're more about like understanding how to, uh, to get the, the most capital out of those things and, and whether or not that is good for the industry itself or for the people who rely upon it is immaterial. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And Mike, I'm curious, Mike, and I would like Mm -hmm. for you, I know you've got tons of questions. I'm sorry, too. But since you are the, you're you're living a slightly different system than ours. So I would love Mm -hmm. to hear that. Now, you just heard what Mark said. What do you think to that, like from your perspective across the pond? I mean, you guys, obviously, with the whole Brexit and um, trying to destroy your, you know, financial security there. Um, yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, it's just one of those things where e- everything is such a mess. And one common thread I've noticed throughout the the Western world is regardless of age, because obviously I'm a bit yeah, younger than you guys, is regardless of age is always that mentality. I remember when I was like eight, my parents saying the same thing, which is, oh, the government is shit. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, the politicians are terrible. They're lies. They don't know what they're doing. And all these big companies screw over the little guy. And, and everyone seems to kind of know, but mm-hmm. no one's, seems to really i'm not saying i could go out the street and change the world like that you know uh, but it's it's i think art arts like this and uh sort of things help bring that realization to people because they kind of i think they do the hammer's cage thing where it's always they just they kind of put the blinkers on and it happens over here it happens over there it, it's just people know it's happening but they feel like if they don't look at it they can kind of ignore it and just kind of throw their hands up and be like well it's just how politicians are and It's like but it's like that because people are complacent a lot of the time if we kind of tried to push a bit harder in certain ways maybe things wouldn't and then over here we're a bit less extreme with stuff i know obviously it's funny in america because i I looked online about billionaires and in the uk we have 151 billionaires and in america you have 788 billionaires but they are about the same proportionally of the population sizes we have which is really weird i thought it was going to be different to that but it is we are smaller than america in almost every way and although there is that worship of money and there is the sort of religiosity like england and the crown and things they've got the religion it's a lot more behind us it's a lot less up front in england you don't get as many uh, religious fundamentalists who are extreme and yelling and you know things like westboro baptist church that sort of thing another extreme version but it just seems like in america you guys have this giant magnifying glass over everything. So from, I'm looking at, from your perspective, I'm like, oh, I, I can see that over here. Just, you have to look a little bit harder in a sense. It's kind of a bit more behind closed doors, a bit more, especially now You guys have got Trump, which is very definitely not a closed door situation. No,
0: right, no. And what, and so Mark, what do you make of that? So there, this is a great, cause I was just curious, you know, how, how this book has been received around the world um, because, you know, at the end, you, you publish letters and stuff, obviously you can only publish so many. So what, um, you know, how has it been received? Is, is it, have people been pretty receptive or are they like, yeah, we always thought you got, like Mike did his research and said oh, it's all, everybody kind of worships the money at the same proportionate level. It's just how sycophantic they are. What, what has been the reaction?
1: Yeah, the reaction's been pretty good. I mean, I, I only see, uh, I think, uh, like a small percentage of the reaction myself, and I think also the um, the people who are going to be reading it are people who kind of know what they're getting into. I don't, I don't think that a lot of people are are surprised by what they're getting from billionaire. And so, in a lot of ways, the 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 reaction is sort of curated for you know, it's it's. It, it's these are my fans that are reading it generally, uh, but but overall I think the reaction's been really good and really positive. But yeah, it's the sort of thing we all sort of know, and and yet rarely sort of openly discuss. It's you know um, like your grandpa's drinking problem or something, like our <laughs> sort of addiction to capitalism, and and I you know and I wrote a comic book uh, uh, in two thousand eighteen about uh, it was a. Lex Luthor Porky Pig comic book.
0: That was and really it, funny.
1: It was about Lex Luthor. Uh, he has like this sort of like uh, social media company, and he's hired Porky Pig to sort of boost membership and stuff, <laughs> to boost uh, sales and revenue. And um, the, one of the subplots is that while Porky Pig is like managing this company, Lex Luthor just comes in and like steals everyone's sandwich out of the out of the the, the break room fridge. <laughs> And everyone knows that it's Lex Luthor who's coming in and stealing their sandwiches, but they can't do anything about him because he's the boss. So they end up sort of uh, firing the Mexican janitor instead, blaming it on him and firing. And I think that's like a metaphor for what's happened in America. It's like, we know that it's you know, the, um, the corporations and you know, the, the mega billionaires who are, and it's the, the, the Trump and his friends who are stealing our lunch. Uh, but we can't. We feel like we can't do anything about them, so we take it out on immigrants, or, or you know, the poor people who are you know, the least, you know, logical people to take it out on because they're the ones who are, you know, the bigger victims even than ourselves. Uh, so it's about the the irrationality of our reaction to the fact that like our social safety nets have been destroyed and we are increasingly forced to the edge, is like driven by the fact that we feel powerless against the true enemy. we feel powerless against the forces that are really driving us that way so we turn on each other
0: well and you and because mike brought up the hamster wheel and obviously that metaphor runs uh, pun intended literally through this whole book um with with the people in the hamster wheel and so um in that sense they you know they're willing to even get so gaslit that they blame themselves even right because you show the juxtaposition you show the immigrants who come and build the prison that they need to put on Billionaire Island. And then they, of course, when it's all over, they're like, well, what are we going to, the, the line is, who are those people? And they're like, they've been there the whole time. And then at the end, and now that it's built, the, the people for whom the prison has been built, turn and look and see these immigrants. And they're like, who are those people? And they're like, like, Jakes is like, they built this. He's like, well, we can't have them here. So they instantly blame them. And then with them.
1: It's, gone, it's like another really abrupt metaphor for America is that the immigrants who built the prison are its first inhabitants. Yeah. It's, oh, now that yeah. you've built the place, we got to throw you into the, the clink that you just built.
0: <laughs> right. Which is what, right. I mean, the way that the Chinese were treated with during the, you know, during the with the westward expansion with the right. railways being built. And you would, you touch on a lot of that in the Lone Ranger with the barbed wire, which is, which was genius, by the way. I loved the that you were doing the build the wall and it was the barbed wire. It was so fucking smart and funny i loved that book i don't know if any, i will link to that too if you haven't read the dynamite lone ranger because that was it's that yeah, I'm, i was isn't there, proud so.
1: of that lone ranger comic book as i am of anything i've done i don't think i got as much recognition as some of the other things but yeah i feel like that's that's among my some of my very best writing and um and it's out there it's floating around in the ether we,
0: and it well and it's the same and i will definitely link to it and promote it and and just tell everyone they should definitely read it because it, it, it addresses the same idea um, the way that, that people are treated and then and then the people in the hamster cage the gaslighting of them to the point where what's her name I have it written down here uh, lacy Lacey Peters um, the woman who thinks this is like a corporate training exercise and then when they escape when Shelley and Flynn escape Flynn comes back and there's I don't know. That that kind of shook me to my core a little bit. The way that they were just so happy to sit in a cage and shit in sawdust, and, and it literally took them being lit on fire to get out of there. Um, I guess what was the what was your? I, I don't know. I, I I don't really have a question as much to just say like the fucking gaslighting that goes on, and this is such. Yeah. It, it's so well.
1: powerful. I think once you make people feel powerless against the forces that are really sort of controlling them, they uh, they will gaslight themselves. They will they will come up with explanations for why this had to be there's like or how this is actually a good thing. You know, um, the the you know, I'm sure you've all seen the meme of the the dog in the burning house saying this is fine. That's really all of us. It's like you know we can't do. We that it's too late to really put the house out or to um, extinguish the flames. So what's left for us is either to panic or just to convince ourselves this is fine. And yeah, you know, most of us have chosen to do the latter.
2: Yeah, and it's, well, it's also oh, go. Nice, it, it's also it is. I think that scene specifically, it, it, as Tony said, it shook me to a core in, in the same sort of way where it was just like that guy uh, Flynn at the start. He was like kind of too cool for the other ones you know he used the one standing by obviously when the money fell down he quickly he thought he was a rebel exactly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and i, I love the character with his hipster that.
0: beard yeah yeah and, his, and are... he
2: said he loves he can't he misses his vinyls he can't wait to get home and see his vinyl collection and <laughs> i was like i have vinyls but that is so funny like that's the kind of person that you see out and you're like if you talk to him for five minutes he's going to talk to you about craft coffee or vinyls or pale ales which and then they go outside obviously and he has like a small amount of of hurdles in front of him and he's immediately like oh no, i got to get back. And it's, it's that weird thing of almost getting, almost like the, the, what's the term? Like a nanny state almost, where you're kind of babied so much. And then it's almost with our po- uh, political side and almost financially in a lot of ways, like all, all the big people up there, they make all the big decisions for us. And so because of that, we kind of, a lot of time, almost don't want to make any hard decisions or don't want to push ourselves in certain directions. Instead, it's like, that's too hard. It's too scary. It's too different. I'm just going to kind of hide in my little box and not think about it.
1: Yeah, the, the fling character was about how, um, sort of exemplifies how, why most of us make the decisions to play along with the rule, play according to the rules, because outside the system that they've created, it's so barren and there's almost no way to like make your living or to, you know, live a normal life outside the system they've created, that it's understandable by some people who even despise the system or even, you know, don't understand what's happening to them choose to go back into the hamster cage because the alternative is you know life without your vinyl collection it's you know living in a cave eating seagull meat
0: (laughs) loved that scene when they meet Jake's and uh Shelly is just like okay and and, because she's you see her and Jake's like how's your seagull she's like it's a bit tough it's a bit gamey I think and the look on Flynn's face when he's got a lizard on a stick there's the panic and the um just the, the way that, like, that's the moment for him. He's like, well, this is what it, and cause Jake's been there for five years. So it's not as though you can't do it. I mean, yes, he's gone. I, I appreciated that you guys decided to give him a uh, Wilson from Castaway, but it was a taped together mannequin doll, which was Linda, yeah. <laughs> Linda. that was so funny. Um, yeah, he represents
1: yeah. the fate of everyone who chooses to truly be authentic and try to like live off the grid and outside the system. It's like, yeah, not many people are gonna choose that life though.
0: Right, because it, it it takes up, like you said, the sacrifice isn't, I'm never going to see my vinyl collection. The sacrifice is, I'm going to eat pigeons or eat seagull and eat lizard and talk to a, a doll because that's the only way I can truly, I'd rather yeah. do this than live there.
1: As long as this, you know, the, the institutions are the way they are now, uh, those are really our choices is to like, you know, live in a cave eating the seagull and lizards or to... Um, or just accept it or to fundamentally change the institutions themselves and those are really the three choices presented to us
0: and that's what that's the that's the gist right that's what we try to yeah. see our heroes doing and you have two you have, go ahead mike sorry I,
2: I, so i was just gonna say as well mark one of the things i appreciate in the whole um i was going not to spoil everything that happens to people but there's a there's a part where um was it, is it frank sorry is it franco jakes i think his name is the, the guy in the cave oh, He's, yeah yeah, yeah, uh, he Falco, that was it. Yeah, and he he's there's a part where he speaks to Linda, and it's like he's kind of saying goodbye, and it's one of it's one of those clev, clever parts, I think, in a very subtle way, because it's not specifically about you know the the theme of billionaire island, but moments like that where it's such a heartfelt, big, powerful written speech about a mannequin, the the brilliance of. The humor in that I think perfectly just encapsulates a lot of what I've read in both Second Coming and also in Billionaire Island, where it's it's brilliance and it's wrapped in just sort of layers of tongue in cheek or visual puns in the background. And that moment in it really, when I was reading, made me laugh out loud because it's it's, it's such a weird feeling. Because, like, I feel for this guy, it's emotional, but he's, he's talking to a fucking mannequin. So it's, I just thought that was brilliant. Well, thank you.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of what you know it all boils down to in life is like we we want to have basic emotional connections with people, and that all the other stuff, the distribution of wealth, and the you know the industrialization, uh, the you know the division of labor, are all just sort of like layered on top of the fact that in the end we're you know we're human beings who just want at the at the end of the day an emotional connection to another person, and if we're denied that, we'll create the emotional connection that we need uh to to other things and yeah and and I think that that for a story to really work um for me it always feels like there's something missing if there isn't that sort of emotional component if if um if characters aren't emotionally connected to something in their lives
0: Well, and I think I think what works there is the idea of you have to love something and that needs to be kind of your north star that it doesn't matter what it is it can be a book that you're writing or a show that you make or the work that you do, or you know, your partner and you obviously you're gonna love all those things in different levels, but if you don't have something to love if you don't have a, a thing that kind of pushes you um, right. then you're, you're gonna fall apart. And we'll see that the juxtaposition again between Flynn and Jake's Flynn's thing is as Mike says, his fucking vinyl collection and Jake's is this thing that's also made of vinyl but he's found a way to love it and it's brought him something and and leaving her behind is sad, but he knows she'll, in a weird way. I always feel like Linda's going to be proud of him. Like that's what he <laughs> thinks.
1: I know? think it's also about, like, you know, the in order to truly love something, you can't really see it as a possession. You have to sort of imagine that, even if it is a possession, you have to sort of imagine that it exists on its own in its own right. And that's very much the way he sees Linda. He doesn't see Linda as a mannequin. He sees her as, as a person. And, uh, and it's like you, you wouldn't be able to love her I think if he did, if he did did just see her as a co- as a cobbled together mannequin.
0: Yeah, I think that's real smart. And I, I'm curious too. You know the 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 journey. You know I think he's a great character, and I'm glad he's there. And it was so we needed a way in, and and it was yeah, like he's like sort of
1: the Virgil of uh, Billionaire Allen. He's the one who knows exactly why this was created and how, and he's there to tell. Um, Tell us, the reader, like like the background.
0: Yeah, and it was exposition without you didn't you didn't create. Although I one day and you're the person to do it, Mark. One day I would like for you to just make a comic called Exposition Man. If you would <laughs> do that, I would really appreciate it. Um, because you you create an exposition man with him, but it's not. It doesn't feel that way because you everything makes sense. Everything you set it up perfectly so that we get to him. He's not a deus ex machina. He doesn't just pop in just for the sake of it. And then he explains why there are flaws in the system. And having worked, having built, when I was coming up as an instructor, I built houses and, um, uh, you know, so I was working part-time as a teacher and I was just having to live because being an adjunct professor pays nothing. So I was like, be a carpenter. And so I've seen this. I've seen exactly what he's describing. People buy, making million dollar houses and then going cheap on the windows because they ran out of money or going cheap on the carpet. And you're like, you're gonna walk on this carpet, you just spent all this money on some stupid fucking chandelier that no one's gonna look at and is impossible to clean, but the thing you're gonna use, you're gonna go cheap. That doesn't make yeah, any
1: sense. I I read a thing recently about how like, you know, they're they're making more modern house uh, construction in America is designed to sort of make, make houses look like you know, these, these starter mansions to make them look like million dollar properties, but they're also designed to to not last beyond the payment of a 30-year mortgage. So like, by the time you paid your mortgage, your house is pretty much shot. It needs to be demolished. And so it's that same sort of like um, uh, uh, living for the moment, but setting up our eventual failure. That's that same sort of mindset, uh, I think would, would pervade the construction of Billionaire Island.
2: and and i think it perfectly encapsulates that in a billionaire and i wrote down one of the quotes which is might be my favorite of the whole uh it it fits very well with the theme of the book and it was billionaires expect the best of everything they just don't want to pay for it and it's like that is so because that's that's a that that works on every level you can look at but not only in this comic but in the world it is like yeah billionaires want all this money and they want to Ru- like ruin the, uh, run the world almost or live in it at the highest possible place but when it's asked to hey can you you know give a bit of money to help the world run they're like what you want us to pay taxes there's things like you know yeah. amazon and google and starbucks those are these big companies you're like air quotes sta- staples uh in western society and they're like they get out of paying taxes you're like but that's the basic thing right and i just think that encapsulates perfectly
3: he,
1: there's really two things that will happen when you know um people accumulate massive amounts of capital that they don't need to like live or, or to invest in one is like, you can make them pay in taxes to support the infrastructure of, you know, civilization that they themselves benefit from. And that, that allows, that creates more opportunities for them down the road, down the road because they have an educated workforce and they have infrastructure, like things like the internet and interstate highways that create the opportunities for them to invest in, or you can just let them keep the money uh, in which case not having this huge bubble of money and nothing else really to do with it, they, they usually lose it in stock bubbles, you know? Which so is like, how
0: this, which happens. We see it yeah. in real life.
1: So, but, but even given the choice, it's like, uh, would, you, would you like to donate this money to make sure that civilization continues to run, sir? I think they would still, even if you put it like that, they'd say, no, I'd rather just lose in the stock bubble. Thank you.
0: <laughs> well, because there's the line where the accountant comes in and says, I've figured out how we can solve everything is if everyone who lives on Billionaire Island pays 2% in taxes, we can build an entire fleet of these self-sustaining arcs for the rest of the world. And your population is like, and you've gone to 10 billion in 2044. I assume that that's the projection. That's what you probably based on real math. So 10 billion people could live with 2% of the richest 750 people in the world. And they throw that guy into the ocean right TRT.
1: that's it they would rather spend the money on like you know um and this is sort of the, the 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 thing that we've been sort of tricked into believing through comic books is that we imagine that if they're these billionaires with the unbelievable wealth they would spend it being batman right. or, or tony stark but, but it's really just much more cost effective to buy a private island and you know retreat there while the rest of us fight over the scraps
2: and it's yeah. it's quite upsetting in the sense of whenever we, people talk about uh, billionaires over in the UK um, and in the US, I, I was thinking about it when I was uh, kind of looking up things about billionaires and stuff. I was just I went down a rabbit hole. Unfortunately, last night I was like I'm going to do a bit of research. And pff, hours gone. Um, <laughs> one of the there's too many things about billionaires that are weird. It's just that amount of money is insane to think about. But the thing that's so weird about it is you'd think most people. We'd like to at least think if they got you know if you get like a million uh pounds or dollars or whatever that's enough to keep you going for your life but like a billion is beyond any fathomable sort yeah, of amount i,
1: I think this is part of the problem is that people don't understand like people haven't really evolved to understand like that sort of exponential growth that understand like what an extra comma represents and that sort of so i think oh well, he's just a rich guy you know whereas yeah like, like you say somebody with like say 40 million dollars can live unbelievably wealthy. there, Nothing would be denied to them their entire lives. They could live like Donald Trump, basically on 40 or $50 million. Everything above that, everything up into like the billion dollars and beyond is just about controlling other people. That's Mm -hmm. all that money is really good for is like, you know using it to hold over other people's heads. And it's sad that the only
2: famous billion or at least from for people I've spoken to, the only famous billionaire anyone can really uh, speak about, I don't even know if he's a billionaire, is Bill Gates, who's a philanthropist. He does stuff, uh does lots of uh, investing in uh, sort of impoverished com- uh, impoverished countries and things and infrastructure. Yeah. And that's good, but like yeah. that's the only person most people there might be a couple others I don't know about, but generally speaking people talk about billionaires, it's just oh it's Bill Gates, and he's the only one doing anything compared yeah.
1: to all the others with all the money. And I, and I they certainly, you know, give them credit for philanthropy, those who, who do spend money on philanthropy, and I think that's good. But at the same time, on a societal level, is it really the best idea that all of our planet's resources that are spent on, like, solving the problems, that that be the decision of, like, this guy who just happened to be a billionaire? <laughs> you, know, you know, these few people who are are probably haven't, you know had to like go, step foot inside a grocery store for 30 years. They're the ones that you you, you think should be deciding what best to spend the planet's money on to, to, to help it. Mm. It's, it's like, that should be a matter of a democratic prerogative, not just like the princely discretion of somebody who's managed to accumulate $50 billion throughout his lifetime. Oh, <laughs> I agree, well, I agree completely.
0: And, and I think you hit the nail so perfectly, Mike and I were chatting before you came on about angry motor, angry guy on a bike. Um, <laughs> Who I love, who, you know, is every, he's Rush Limbaugh, he's every right wing crazy with the radio. Yeah, he's
1: like these, these faux sort of blue collar, like enablers of, of, you know, the, the, um, of the, the capitalist class. And it's the trick, and this is it, that's an enab-
0: ape faux enablers. It's the trick that this is, I get really frustrated because I live in an area where all my neighbors have red hats and loaded guns and can all go fuck themselves. But what, what frustrates me is this voting against your own self-interest. Guy, angry guy on a bike, convinces America to continue to buy Agricorp stuff after it's found out yeah. that it's bad for them. And it's this what he's selling them is a bullshit promise that you could be a billionaire. You can't. You can't be a billionaire. You, we, we hear Oprah's story and Oprah started as nothing in Georgia and she worked her way up yeah. and she became a billionaire. She is the, except she's amazing, good for her, love her. Good, what an inspiration. And she's a big philanthropist too. But she is the exception to the rule. You aren't Oprah. You don't have her skill set. You never will. You, the stars will not align. You're not going to be a billionaire. So the fact that you continue to support people who are just out to fuck you over because they're selling you literally the Kool-Aid, that you could join them, but they don't want you to join. Them.
1: Well, and this is the thing I think that, you know, um, the billionaire class and, you know, right-wing ideologues have discovered in general, is that people are more likely to vote along with people they identify with than they are to vote for their interests. So, like, you, you could tell somebody that, you know, if, if like, a, a transgender person learns to, to, like, say, on, I want to give your family health care and make sure that your kids go to a good college, they're more likely to vote with the guy who's got, like, the camouflage baseball cap and, you know, the 12-gauge uh, the, the rack at the back of the car who's, who's telling them that they should, you know, um, set themselves on fire and jump into the Grand Canyon, <laughs> you know. So uh, it, it, at some point they discovered that like that what people really vote on is like what they feel sort of best sort of reinforces their identity and that's how you get people to like sort of vote against their interests you get them to vote against their interests by voting to for their by voting their identity instead
0: and that you and you encapsulate it perfectly in this in this book with him and the way that that he has so much we give him so much control. He gets the, it's just the Fox News echo chamber, right? The, the talking points, are the talking points coming from inside the White House or are they coming from inside Fox? We don't know because it's just a closed loop of, of noxious gas and then people are hurt, harmed. People who who genuinely are harmed continue to, to work against themselves. And the, and the way that Steve draws those people buying the cereal, like there's the one guy who's like throwing, like almost like orgasmically throwing his cereal in his shopping cart and is like, the look on his face of pure bliss buying stuff that he yeah. knows will kill him was fantastic.
1: There's, there's perhaps no emotional state that like Steve draws better than like sort of jubilant hysteria. <laughs> like, people doing the stupidest things in their life and and couldn't be happier about it. That's, that's like, uh, he did that so many times in the Flintstones and just as, as a master of it.
0: Yeah, and it comes through. It is, it, it, oh, God, it's so good, it's so good. Um, I, have, I know we're, I want to be respectful of your time. We've got about 10 minutes left. So I want I've got a question about Trent, the army guy um, mm-hmm. and, and the, the way that you, you kind of set us up for two paths. So this will be my last question. Mike, you look through your list. So this will be your last. So you'll know what your last question is. So you show us the two ways, Shelley trying to you know, show us the truth as a journalist, which I appreciate that our hero is a journalist fighting fake news, trying to fight. Of course she loses. But she tries. And then Trent on the other side is like, fuck that, I'm gonna shoot everybody. So what was your, do you, cause you told us earlier, you think there's three ways, you know, there's like, we can do this, we can do this. But ultimately the third way is change the system. Well, you give us two characters who are trying to genuinely change the system, a journalist and a person who's using violence. You know, obviously you're not not a crazy person who's out shooting people in the street. Although the video from which you're shooting. Not yet. Uh, You know, what what was your thought process there and were you ever concerned about people kind of like, I'm on team Trent a little when they were reading this?
1: Yeah, well, I think that this is like, well, the question I want people to ask themselves is like, to what extent is, is that the only option they're leaving us? And not that I want that to happen. Not that I want, you know, people to go around randomly vigilante shooting people, but, but, but I want people who support that system to support those institutions to question whether or not this is, this, this is the reality they're creating for Americans where this is the only way that they can reach people in power is <laughs> with a midnight visit to their condo and about the importance of leaving people a, a peaceful, uh, nonviolent way to change the, the, the institutions that aren't serving them because that's the only other alternative.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that, and it was it was stark because it's hard. Sometimes you're reading it, and it's hard not to be on his team, but you're also like, he's not the. And that is not the way forward. Like you, you want your heart is yeah. on team Shelley, but your id is on team Trent, right? And you're just like the fact that
1: you have a guy like Trent is like is is because you you because of you failed because we've we failed to find a way to make the system work for people. So what's left is like violence. Yeah, it's a warning more than anything else that yeah we've got to make sure that the system uh, enables its own change. It enables, enables it, that all, every institution that human civilization has ever created is is by its nature behind the times. It's society continues to evolve and this, the institutions don't evolve until people make them. So you gotta create a mechanism by which we can keep the institutions up to date to, with society. That we can, even though they're lagging behind there's gotta be some way we can change and bring them up to speed occasionally. Otherwise the only alternative left for people is to to, to dump them in the sea.
0: Which happens literally in this book. <laughs> I appreciate, you know, and, some, and you are you are the master of metaphor there's no doubt, but sometimes you just sometimes you have to just show us, <laughs> you're like, look, I'm not there's no subtext. It's text. And this is what's happening because this is what you right. need to see. So
2: uh,
1: no, I, I believe him. I'm a firm believer in bluntness. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. Blunt
2: honesty. It, it's yeah. consistent throughout your work. So it, it's brilliant. And um, if I may, I'll ask uh, my sort of question. I will just say though, with Trent, one of my favorite moments I thought was, uh, so it was just amazing to read was when Trent was in the green screen room in the I don't give a shit studios and he's okay. wearing the full morph suit. So he's obviously invisible. I just want to say that, little scene itself i love that i thought it was incredible oh thanks it's just a brilliant idea um and i,
1: I wasn't sure was... how steve was going to be able to draw it because you're drawing an invisible character but he he did he came, he pulled it off pretty well because you see the gun that was yeah
2: it, it was really well i think when he kicks someone at one point because you kind of one or two frames you can't really see him and then he kicks someone and like at the bend of them you can see his foot and you can kind of make the outline out so i mean that was brilliant and what do i want to ask as well is um I absolutely love Second Coming and obviously Billionaire Island as well. I think they're both incredible due to the amount of visual puns in the, the background as well as just uh, clever scripts and things like that. There's so many layers to both of them. And the, the thing I kind of read from that, I, I want to ask if you kind of feel this way. And I think from your last answer, it does allude to this, which is you're not saying that money or religion is bad, but, but the what can happen is that when people have their own perceptions and their own translations their own interpretations of the meaning of life the meaning of religion god's plan any of these things when people kind of go off on their own strange tangent strange tangent fueled by self-interest or uh, just general idiocy, or you know media feeding lies whatever it could be what happens is that these institutions which could be so positive and if done in the right way almost perfect if you could do it in in the right way but because of the way institutions and everything else kind of gets their tendrils in it it shoots them off in such further directions that we're now in a lot of respects quite removed from that and i want to ask because of the theming in both second coming and uh, billionaire island is is that generally what you kind of were going for in a sense
1: yeah i i am not anti-religion or anti-money for that matter but what i think is that like whether it be religion or economics we create these institutions to serve us. And at the moment in which the institution creates us to serve them, it it needs to be stopped. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that these institutions are always there to serve human needs and that human humanity does not exist to serve the greasing of the wheels of these institutions. And that's really what all my, I think, satire is of, is like that point at which we are now serving a system that we ourselves don't benefit from and, probably don't even understand
2: mm. and that's the blunt honesty that comes through in the work and i think it's brilliant
1: thank you yeah
0: I, I agree and so my the the big wrap-up question before you tell everybody where they can find you and i will definitely you know when i originally reached out to you i asked about should we do you know how comfortable you'd be with with um me doing a show on your dynamite stuff because of the whole comics gate stuff over dynamite and you were like Yeah, yeah, I would support that stuff that I did. So I think what I'll do, because after hearing you talk about Lone Ranger, I'm going to get a guest and I'm going to do a Lone Ranger episode because it deserves an hour on its own. I think it was genius. It was... You should,
2: I'll do it because no, I, Michael the more, I, you go. The okay, more there you I've go. been reading and like a second coming, I want to say is I, I absolutely love being that Island, but second coming genuinely is probably my favorite mini series of any comics I've read. I love wow. religion. I just love anything with religiosity. Monty Python's Life of Brian, Good Omens, like anything that is an understanding yeah. of religion and poking fun in the right ways without like the religion as a whole, not religious people in a sense. And that's what I think the genius is. And I love any... Type of religiosity satire. So, I'm, as soon as I read that, when Billionaire Island was out, I was like, "Okay, I'm going to get into that." And then I've I looked up a little bit of other stuff. And I'm like, "I'm just going to have to read all of them." Yeah. To, yeah, okay. Well, Mike,
0: Mike and I will do. And when we do it, we'll link to you. We'll do a whole episode just on the Lone Ranger because I think that was that was so good. It, it and I I think I had said at, when I finished it, I was like, "To me, and again, you know, I know you're on my show, and I'm not trying to, you know, just blow smoke up your ass." I've said this. You can read my reviews of Mark's stuff. I think you're like the best working satirist, period. Not like best working (laughs) satirist in any medium. I really, truly feel that.
1: thanks. I'm going to put that on my business card.
0: Please. It's so, because, and this is, so this kind of goes into my final thing that I ask everybody to end with. And you mentioned too, like the people who are reading this are kind of your fans, um, which is true. But... In, the, in that comic medium, you have so much to say, and maybe you're not reaching as big of an audience as if you were, and I think you had said in one of the interviews, you were like, it's not like I wouldn't work for The Daily Show, they haven't asked. Well, that's not, shame on them. And so, um, in my opinion, because I, I, they are missing out on, on something that could, you know, your insight into things. So, do you think, you know, you're rich, reaching the, a big enough audience, or um, are you kind of um, you know, so who should we give this to? Because the last question is always like, who would you recommend this to? So who do you think we should give this to who's outside of the comic industry, who's outside of Mark Russell fans writ large, who needs to read not just this, but Second Coming, but your work in general? Who do you want to see it and get
1: it? I think maybe people who understand there's something wrong, but don't understand why. I think people who are like, you know, are, are feel like like, like, are they are dissatisfied with, the way the world is being run, but they don't necessarily agree with my take on it. I think that's where the conversation occurs.
0: That's cheap. that's brilliant. I That's awesome. Those are, So that's who we need to find, Mike. Let's find those people. And get this in their
1: hands. <laughs> oh, you won't have no problem finding those people.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. I live next door to them. Um, yeah. There's a guy on my fun minute condo, myself, and so in Florida. By the way, I loved that it was billionaire item was in Florida. I am in Florida, and then the floor, the NBA set their bubble here. You know, this like weird billionaires and millionaires yeah. living in a safe, secure environment was happening like an hour and a half from where I live. And you know, it's like, oh God, you know, it's like apparently you have a time machine and so you're like i'm going to set it here because that's what will happen
1: well and the reason why i said it there because i thought like you know florida is uniquely susceptible to climate change right so i could show like miami like underwater and it could be in not too distant future
0: yeah but then the real billionaire island happened in orlando because mls and the nba both got to create their own little secret worlds that no one else was allowed (laughs) into uh it's crazy tell everybody where they can find you online
1: uh, best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm, that's where I'm most active, and I'm at Manress, Manruss, M-A-N-R-U-S-S. Uh, also on Instagram under the same handle.
0: Nice. And uh, I thank you so much. This is such an honor for me. I, um, I, I, you know, I've been a fan for since Flintstones. I mean, that's well, I read Prez, but then I started reviewing Flintstones. So you and I have been in touch for years, and this is this is such an honor to finally get to meet you and chat with you. So thank you for doing this.
1: My pleasure. Anytime. Good, thank your, to talk thank to you, talking on my part as well. It's a yeah, pleasure yeah. to meet you, Mark. Okay, good
0: meeting Thanks, you, Mike. Mark. All right, bye. So, Mike, what'd you think of our chat with Mark Russell? <laughs> I thought it
2: was amazing. Okay, yeah. So. um My name is uh, Mike Burton. I host the show Genuine Chit Chat, which is on a completely different feed, just so it's Genuine Chit Chat, you can find it. Uh, But I also have a show called Star Wars Comics in Canon, which airs on the same place that you're listening to this, uh, on the feed of Comics in Motion, uh, except my show comes out on Saturdays. For things to do with Star Wars comics uh, and I did book reviews and things and I've got some things lined up for certain people who involved in Star Wars content
0: coming up. I, I know, so I, know. I don't want to jinx you. it but
2: no. it's it's going to be uh, I'm quite excited for that and hopefully that opens some doorways as well but it's basically at the moment just getting into Star Wars stuff whether or not you like the movies or you're into the super nerd stuff like I am with all the series but genuinely I have a different guest on it's kind of like this sort of thing that Tony's doing right now uh, and then Star Wars Comics and Canon's me talking into a microphone uh, by myself for every episode except number 30 where <laughs> Tony came on we're like podcast bros we just keep. yeah we are
0: that's right we get, that could, maybe comic to motion should change to pod, podcast bros i know they're called as chris and david's whatever entertainment but maybe podcast bros yeah sure cool. that would and,
3: be
2: cool and my social media is just at genuine chit chat uh they all spotify all the usual places and Everywhere you listen to this, you'll be able to find me. So there's not an excuse. So go do it.
0: <laughs> really, that's true. And honestly, Mike's shows are genuine. Chat is is a great show. I love it. Um, so uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Tricycle Blue Box. You can go to my website, AR Farina. You can send me a note there. And the only way to end, in my opinion, a show about Billionaire Island, money, that's what I want. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.
3: Best things in life are free, but you can give them to the buds and bees. I need more, that's what I want. What I want That's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I want. Your love give me such a thrill, but your love.